Well, it's nice to be here. <laughs> Wilma and I have been looking forward to the day. Um, and just meeting and seeing you all again. It's been all of three weeks or close to three weeks. So it seems much longer than that. And, uh, but we're so glad to be here and to be able to share with you. You've been obviously engrossed in this topic of the Kingdom of God. It's interesting that when we went to uh, Reading Family Church, guess what their topic has been for the last six weeks or two months, and that has been the Kingdom of God. Um, so it must be something that God really wants us to think through carefully, and you've had quite a few months now actually of doing that, and I don't know what you've built up, the idea, the concept of the Kingdom of God and how it's been impacting you personally and corporately together. But today I'm going to share on proclaiming the Kingdom through deeds, although this is such a huge topic that obviously we're not going to break down into different deeds and different actions and different ways of serving, different ways of encouraging and helping one another. But I do want to, and I feel the Lord has led me to actually put deeds in the context of our, our Christian lives, Amen. rather than focus on. Because I think over the years of serving God in so many different places, especially in the Far East, we've got it right sometimes and we've got it wrong many times. And so easy, the act of doing things can actually not be helpful in terms of your spiritual growth, understanding of what God wants to do in and through you. And so, the kingdom, as we've been studying, now offers us the blessing of God's rule and the blessings of deliverance from the power of sin and Satan now. That we've made clear. And some of the promises you have in Galatians 5 are love, joy and peace, even in this world today. This can be yours and this can be mine. And that's by the grace of God, isn't it? that we can do that and be part. But there was also a dimension that really confused Jewish people, the mystery of the kingdom. The mystery is simply something that's been hidden, that's now been revealed. And of course the mystery for them is that they look back into the Old Testament and the writings of Daniel and others, has been that, you know, when the kingdom of God come, there was going to be this power of God coming and everything was changing and this evil world was suddenly changed and we would live in a, a world of righteousness. The kingdom come. But it became very clear in Jesus' ministry that that wasn't going to be the case. That he had a different plan and the mystery with, that comes through, especially in the parables, is that the kingdom can be rejected by people. It's not forced upon them. It's not something that's pressured and put on. Dalai, you have to. It's a personal response. It's a personal reaction. It's a personal relationship. And so Jesus said that very clearly. There are going to be those in between the first coming, which we will celebrate in a few weeks' time, and the second coming, which we will really celebrate there's going to be this challenge, this battle in your life and in mine and in the life of the church. But there will be a time 
when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So in, we're caught in between that now. And the writer of the Hebrews was writing at a time, a tough time, when things were difficult, where things were persecution, all kinds of manner of things were taking place, which was making it difficult for them to continue in their walk with God. And there was this challenge. Are you going to go on, or are you going to give up? And that is going to be constantly our challenge, even more so in the days ahead. And I feel that very much. And Jesus, he made that clear, having given that promise and in John 3.16, but then he says, you know, men love darkness more than light. And that really just explains this wonderful gift has been given. This wonderful provision has been made. The Father has given us his Son, and his Son has come. And he's lived, and he's died, and he's risen again. And we have this wonderful promise, but that will be rejected by many. And into this, we have word and the kingdom in word and the kingdom in truth. I think Ellie will bring in a couple of weeks' time on the word. I just want to link them together because you cannot separate them. It's word and deed. The two go together. And actually, as you read through, Jesus came and he was speaking before he did. There was important, the communication of the word. So the word of God, the proclamation of truth, and the demonstration of truth must go hand in hand. And it's very important, not just as a church, but as individually, we work that through. What is the Holy Spirit saying to you personally (coughs) about the proclamation of the word and actually the demonstration of that word? Because they go together. And you know in your life and mine, I can remember, they don't always come in the right order. Sometimes it's the word that gives birth. And then you have a proclamation, a declaration, a demonstration. But it doesn't always. I remember the very first time I went into Gold Hill Church as a non-Christian. And the thing that caught me was not so much what Jim Graham spoke on, although he did later, many times. It was a time when Hillary and I were in the same youth group at that time. But the thing that really struck me that there were people in church who really enjoyed being there. And that was something that I hadn't really appreciated. I thought it was like, a, you know, you were coming because that was kind of pressure. But they actually loved to be there. And that, even something like that can be a catalyst of change. And through that, that was an entry point which the truth of God began to work in many ways. You know, when we were living in St. Coltai, that's uh, the old capital of Thailand, many years ago, um, we had an annual camp every year. And we had 100, 200 people coming to that camp. And the Thai people, when you're going into meeting, they take the shoes off, okay? I think we're probably glad that we don't all have to do that now. <coughs> but they took their shoes off because the feet, the lowest part of the body, and often there's a, a bowl of water, you sprinkle your feet with water before you're going into the meeting room. And it was interesting that these 100, 200 pairs of shoes outside the meeting, and there was this old man who had never really been into a meeting. He came for the first time. He said, I didn't have a clue 
what the guy was talking about. But the thing that spoke to me, the thing that really made me think, this must be something true in all that's taking place, he said, when I came out of the meeting, my shoes hadn't been stolen. They were still there. And something as simple as that was, was, was triggered him to open up his heart and to believe in Jesus. When he heard the truth, he saw something. And that kick-started something inside him. And so Jesus said himself, I mean, Luke 24, 19, Jesus himself was powerful in word and in deed. And these two things are going to be targeted more and more. Before we look at just this briefly at this passage, the Word of God, the battle for the Word of God is going to be central in your life and my life. I sense that more and more in these coming days. What we do with this Word of God is going to be absolutely crucial. The greatest, one of the greatest temptations is to compromise on this truth. And we see that more and more, don't we? To water down moral and biblical standards to fit more comfortably into the world in which we're part of. And the two things that come out of that, I think, anyway, the two crucial things, that we don't see repentance because of that, and we do not see a continuing faith. It's a stop-start thing which can have dramatic impact on our spiritual lives. So the Word of God, we need to understand the battle of that is no longer a spare tyre, or is it a spare tyre or a steering wheel in your life? That's important to understand. Is the Word of God a spare tyre? Oh, I pick it up and read it every now and again. It's good. It kind of encourages me. Or is it the steering wheel that takes you where God wants you to be? When it comes to deeds, we have a similar challenge. Because deeds, there's a great temptation to go two ways. Whoops, this is really wobbly. <laughs> On the one extreme, in your life and in mine, we can take the, the battle to become, it's just for me. It's just for me. It's the internal gaze. The spiritual life is just me. I'm not worried about you. I will just try and make myself okay before God revolves basically around me. And secondly, the other extreme is to go right the opposite way. And because we love to do things and be involved in things and, and serve and help people, you think by that that you're sufficient and you're right with God. And so there are all these two contrasts. One thinking only of me, one thing of others, but actually the more you do that, the connection with God becomes less. And it becomes more distant. And so, the third outcome, which we will see as we read Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 25, is simply this, that our times together become less and less important. That was the drift. So, let's look at Hebrews 10 again, and I want to go through this, because the context, you will see the context of serving in the kingdom, or doing deeds, that is not where the writer of the Hebrews starts. He starts up, there's four let us that he goes through. Let us, where's the first one he comes to? Let us draw near to God. Because deeds do not necessarily reveal that much to us. 
I can come in, the, in church with my Bible open and automatically assume I'm a Christian because I've got my Bible and I read it and open it and look at it. But it may not be the case. I love the story of the Hep- in the Hebridean revival in 1949 of two girls who were asked, told by their parents to go to the revival meeting. And they went and they took their Bibles with them and uh, they really looked the part. But unbeknown to everybody else, in the centre of their Bible, they placed their favourite magazine so they could read it while the preacher was preaching. <laughs> the difficulty or the thing that they hadn't counted on was the simple fact that when you're in revival, it's a very dangerous thing to do. And halfway through the preaching, the preacher suddenly stopped and looked at these two girls and they said, excuse me, can I tell you what magazine you're reading? And that opened up both their lives and they became Christians. But you see, deeds don't always portray the truth of what's going on inside you or me. And, and that's the fact that we need to look at. And that's why the writer of the Hebrews doesn't say that. He doesn't start there. He will start in another place. But if, before we get that, you can see that very clearly in Revelations 2 and 3, can't you? What does it say? I know your deeds. But then it says, but. You've got that in Ephesus. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance, but there's something missing. It's absolutely crucial. So deeds are not central. But they still are important. Thyatira, I know your deeds, your love and your faith, your service and your perseverance, that you're doing more than you ever did before, but something's not right. Sardis is exactly the same. I know your deeds, your reputation. You have a reputation of being alive. And they were so pleased with that reputation. But God saw something was radically wrong in other aspects of church life. And Laodicea would be exactly the same. You see, but I want to encourage us, because at times, when our lives are either far from God, or struggling to work out our daily walk with God, all is not lost. Hallelujah. At times when through sin we embrace a lifestyle that's not right with God, all is not lost. That's the message coming through Revelations. And it comes through again in Hebrews. At times when temptations are all around you and me, and we're tempted and we do fall, all is not lost. At times when we mix the truth of God's word. At times when the immoral world comes and, and batters us. All is not lost. And I want us to really think, because this, this wonderful song that we, sang, we sing in Battelle so often, and it means so much to the guys and the girls, because they've come through so much, and they've struggled, and they've sunk the temptations, think, because of all of that, God is never going to allow me to rise to the height that I, I once could if I hadn't been dragged down into these areas of sin. Higher than the mountains that I face, and stronger than the power of the grave, constant in the trial and the change, one thing remains. Your love never fails. 
And despite this, in, in Revelations 2 and 3, the Spirit of God was speaking through and saying, all is not lost. In these last days, the church may not be as we would want it to be. We'd love to be ten times bigger. We'd love to have so much more going on. All is not lost. And we need to understand that and come back to, the, to the, this realisation again. But in the midst of this, God may discipline us. Hebrews says, My son, do not make light the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves. And that was the message coming through. So clearly, those whom I love, I will discipline. And so in these days, as the Spirit of God is putting the spotlight on your life and mine and our corporate life together, there will be areas where we know that's not right. I've got to change here. I've got to change there. My attitudes are wrong. My actions are not right. But many may write you off but the one thing I love about this is that see, in Hebrews 3 it says this, but God is knocking on the door. Do you know that? Despite all that's going on, despite all the things that may not be right, God is still knocking on the door. He says, Jesus, it's nothing to do with evangelism, that verse. That's been misconstrued over the years. If the idea is Jesus knocking on the door of the church so that he can come in and change things and move people, and change people, and bring blessing and encouragement and hope where there isn't any. And he's knocking on the door. That's what makes me so excited today. When you go around and I think, sometimes we all think, oh, I'm really messed up. There's not much hope for me. Yes, there is. He's knocking on the door. The thing is, will we open? Will we open to all that the Spirit of God wants to do? Will we open to all that the Word wants us to do in our lives? Will we do that? That's a big test. And it's a test we're going to have to face time and time again. God is knocking on the door of the King's Church Chesham. Not that he's already in, but there are so many more ways in which he wants to come in. So many more people he wants to bless, change, move, give things, so that you can serve, so that you can demonstrate the life of Christ to a very needy world. But these come into this. The first, let us, is in verse 22. This is where we begin. Let us. Stop running around doing things. The first book, let us draw near to God. Why and how? This is not a casual thing. This is like a 999 call. A couple of weeks ago, the owner just moved to Reading and I had trouble with my teeth and I thought, oh dear, I haven't got a dentist. Uh, you have to tour and national health dentist, you can't get any anywhere. <coughs> not in the Reading area, it's all private. And I thought, oh boy. But you see, when you have a toothache, I think, well, I can wait a few days. But if I had a heart attack, it would be a different kind of call. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I think we realise that some of the issues where God wants to work in our lives is more than a toothache. It's some radical heart change that needs to take place. 
in order for us to be able to move forward into the things that God has for us in the coming days. Let us draw near to God. Faith is given to have confidence that God can work a miracle even in me. It's not necessarily going into a church building or walking or coming to an altar at the front. This is an act of the heart. This is a drawing near with your heart to the heart of God. And that's where it all begins. That's where the place, this is where serving comes from. This is where deeds, doing things in the kingdom of God, it comes out of place of having drawn close to God. And out of that something happens. If you ask most missionaries, but certainly I've met, we've all made so many mistakes. We think that by serving God, we're automatically pleasing Him and doing what is good. <laughs> sometimes we've had to understand that serving and serving people is not the first call. <coughs> it's walking with God that's the first call. Mm -hmm. And so that's why the drawing near is so crucial. So whatever involvement we're in, the first base is always this, Lord, I want to draw close to you afresh this morning. I want something to happen in my life. I'm coming to you. I realise there's some issues that I really need to be cleared through. I'm going to draw near. Draw near to God. Secondly, it says, the second let us. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. This is all building up towards love and serving. Let us hold one swervingly. The grammar demands in this particular passage that hope itself has a quality of being alive. It's not something future. It's something present now. Let us hold uncertainly yes to the hope that we profess, but the hope that makes us live the life that God has given us to live now. Embrace your hope. Hold fast to your hope. Be a hope-filled person. Hope in God. Because God has made promises to you. And promises to me. Yes for now and yes for future. To embrace the now so that we can live in the power of the Spirit of God. According to the Word of God. Pleasing our Father. Let us hold. Let's take the cap off of hope so that it lives now. It lives in what we say and it lives in what we do now. It's a living hope. That means it's living now. It's a living hope. And that's where the writer of the Hebrews coming in. Let us draw near to God and then let us hold unswerving. Nothing but nothing is going to change my view of who Jesus is. Nothing's going to change what I want to be and to serve and to love and to glorify Him in whatever that. Nothing, no matter what opposition, no matter what issues face, whether in sickness or in health, nothing is changing because this is my hope. And I can't let that go. This is the build-up to sharing. It has something. When this is living, it impacts people when you talk ordinarily. They sense something so much deeper and so much more to you than just the words you're sharing. Something of this hope shines through. And then it says, let us consider how to spur one another on toward love and good deed. In other words, consider one another. 
And this is the big issue, isn't it? This is sometimes not always... The writer, when he said he uses twice the word consider, consider Jesus, and then he said consider one another. In Hebrews 3.1 he said, consider Jesus. What does that really mean? It says, it means look at him. Look at him. Focus on him. Study him. Let your mind be occupied with him. And in Hebrews 10, it's the same grammar again. As in the same way that we consider Jesus, the same way you consider one another. So when look at one another. Let's just look at one another. <laughs> Study one another. Well, you know, get to understand what hurts, what doesn't hurt, what is good, what isn't, what are the struggles are, what are the issues you're facing. Look at one another, begin to understand. It's not just meeting and having a coffee, it's getting behind and thinking, you know, and us being willing to share with one another at that level. Consider one another. To love and good deeds. To think about one another. Let your mind be occupied. Because Paul says, therefore we have opportunity. Let us do good to all people, friends and enemies, but especially to those of the family of God. And this is where we begin. Out of this flow of love again, out of this understanding, this compassion, something really tangible takes place. And that burst serving, doing good deeds, is coming out because we spend time in the presence of God. We've held on to this unswerving hope and we begin to consider one another. Out of that, how can we really get hold of God together? in a way that's going to be magnifying the glory of God in our midst. The motivation for doing this is the love of Christ. And that's my big challenge as I come this morning. The love of Christ. You're not doing it because somebody asked you to, but there's this fresh impact, the love of Christ. If you see all that Jesus has done for you, the love that he has for you, all that he's provided for you, the Spirit of God being poured out in so many different ways, how can we not love him? And that be the inspiration of love and good deeds one to another. That is the power, that is the force. It's the love of Christ that suddenly, Paul said, it's the love of Christ that compels me. He's not saying, well, come on, okay, I'll give it a go, this once. It's something more than that, isn't it? It's the love of Christ compelling him to go forward, compelling him to serve, compelling him even to lay down his life, which he did. And so it brings this very much, the love of God. The overriding question. Then I leave you, what does my love look like this morning? Not just on the Sunday morning bit. What does my love for Christ look like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, <coughs> in the market, in the office, wherever we may be? What does my love for Christ look like? Do you remember that question that Jesus asked Peter? Peter, do you love me? More than these? 
We can talk about a new day in the spirit. We can talk about so many things we want to see happen in the church. But this explosion of love for Jesus and for one another will transform this church. Mm -hmm. But it's costly, isn't it? It's costly. You lay down your life for this. That's the love of Christ, isn't it? You lay down your life. You look around and say, I'm going to lay down my life for you. I'm going to lay And you think, hang on. Do I really mean that? Will I do that? What does it look like in the coming weeks and months? What's it going to look like? We may be tempted to call it a day. Because of not meeting, the, coming up to the mark, not coming up to the level, we think, oh, I couldn't do that. Of course you couldn't. But the power of God in you, the love of Christ flowing in you, you can do that. You can become that. As a church, as an individual, as a church together, you can become all that Christ wants you to become. And that's why he finishes up with this one caveat at the end. Fourth, let us. Let us not forsake meeting together. Because we need each other. Mutual support, spurring one another on, helping one another to be strong in faith, urgent need to encourage one another, to be accountable <coughs> to one another, to build one another up, and to forgive one another. But it comes back to the love of Christ, doesn't it? C.T. Studd said this, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. And that's the truth. That's the truth of the Gospel. That's the truth that Jesus taught and has demonstrated. What does our love look like? I know as Wilbur and I begin to look at how we can serve in Reading in different ways, we have to look at that again. What does our love look like? What does my love for God look like in a new environment, in a new setting, in a new place? <coughs> so easy just to rely on yesterday, what we may have done, where we may have been. But it's today. What is the love of Christ? Lord, will you come and fill my life afresh with the love of Christ so that we can be the people you want us to be in the place where you placed us. And so we come this morning, friends, let us draw near to God. Will you do that? Let us unswervingly hold to the hope. Take the lid off hope and let it live. Let us encourage one another to love and good deeds. And let us not forsake 